0: this is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ackman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ackman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. As you might have anticipated in the first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about Israel the Palestinians, and the United Nations. I just returned from conducting my annual study tour of Israel. As usual, it was an invigorating trip for me personally and for those who were a part of the study tour. While I was in Israel, the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, petitioned the 66th session of the United Nations to, in effect, unilaterally declare Palestinian state. The move was anticipated and was not much of a surprise to Israel. From much of the world's perspective, it was a liberating move. Indeed, at the United Nations, Abbas received thunderous applause and a standing ovation. But it was an incongruous gesture on the part of the Palestinian Authority. It was, in effect, good theater, the theater of the absurd. In this perspective, I want to present a multifaceted analysis of this development. First of all, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinians have built their case for this unilateral declaration of statehood around the proposition that Israel has not negotiated seriously and that the United Nations Declaration of Statehood is the only way they can get the territory and state that they argue is their destiny and right. What Israel is offering, they contend, is only a fraction of the territory to which they are entitled. Is this true? Is it an accurate justification for this radical and, in my view, unjust course of action? Understanding the action of the Palestinian Authority recur- requires a review of what has occurred nearly 64 years ago, what occurred at the United Nations. On November 29, 1947, the General Assembly voted to partition British controlled Palestine into two states, one Arab and one Jewish, which would then live side by side in peace. Obviously, the Jews accepted this agreement, but the Palestinians rejected it and joined with five Arab armies to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. They failed. Similar wars to liquidate the Jewish state occurred in 1956, 1967, and in 1973. Then in 1993 the Palestinians received another chance to accept the two-state solution. During the Oslo Accords negotiations in Norway, Palestinians and Israelis pledged to resolve all outstanding issues through face-to-face negotiations. This pledge produced two Israeli peace proposals, one in 2000 and one in 2008 that met virtually all of the Palestinians' demands for a sovereign state in areas won by Israel in the 1967 war, including concessions in the West Bank, Gaza, and even East Jerusalem. Incredibly, in the 2008 offer by Ehud Omer of Israel, Israel was willing to give the Palestinians 100% of the West Bank with appropriate land swaps, Palestinian statehood, and amazingly, even the division of Jerusalem with Muslim parts becoming the capital of the new Palestine. Omer even offered to turn over the city's holy places, including the sacred Western Wall, which sometimes called the Wailing Wall, the holiest of all Jewish sites, to an international body on which now sit Jordan and Saudi Arabia. However, Yasser Arafat in 2000 and Mahmoud Abbas in 2008, in effect, ignored these. Why? And dear people, here is the critical, central issue. Because both offers require that the Palestinians accept Israel as a Jewish state, something they have been unwilling to do since 1947. The Israeli ambassador, Michael Oren, writes, In between Israeli peace officers, the Palestinians waged a terror war that killed and maimed thousands of Israelis. When Israel uprooted all of its settlements from Gaza in the year 2005, the Palestinians failed to create a peaceful enclave. Instead, they created a Hamas terrorist stronghold that has fired thousands of rockets at Israeli citizens. Yet, in spite of their rejection and trauma, Israelis continue to uphold the vision of two peaceful adjacent states. Since 2009, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ordered the removal of hundreds of checkpoints in the West Bank, facilitating remarkable economic growth and dramatically increased transport in and out of Gaza. When President Obama asked Netanyahu to freeze the construction of West Bank settlements, he announced an unprecedented 10-month moratorium on such settlement construction. But over the course of two and a half years, Mr. Abbas negotiated for a total of six hours and then refused to discuss Israel's security needs. The bottom line of all of this is that the Palestinians are unwilling to accept Israel as a Jewish state, a homeland for the Jewish people all over the world unless and until they are willing to accept that, there will be no peace. Israel has demonstrated again and again that it is willing to give up land for peace. They did it with Egypt. They did it with Jordan. But the peace with the Palestinians requires that they acknowledge Israel's right to exist and to exist as a Jewish state. All events since 1947 have demonstrated that they are unwilling to do so. By going to the United Nations and by insisting that the United Nations recognize the Palestinian state, Mahmoud Abbas is in effect trying and unrun around the fundamental requirement that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state. He apparently is unwilling to acknowledge that fact. Unless he does, the United Nations has no right to grant Palestinians that kind of recognition. This leads me to a second part of this analysis. Israel has lived under a cloud of perpetual dread since its creation in 1948. As columnist Brett Stevens has argued, just consider the two months that Israel had in August and September of this year, 2011. First, on the 18th of August, eight Israelis were killed in a sophisticated cross-border ambush near the frontier with Egypt. Two, from August 18th through August 24th, some 200 large caliber factory-made rockets and mortars were fired at Israel from Gaza. Three, on September 1, the head of Iran's atomic energy entity announced that it was moving the bulk of its enrichment facilities to a heavily fortified site near the city of Qom. Number four, on the 2nd of September, the United Nations released a report on the May 10th Turkish flotilla incident, which defended Israel's right to enforce the naval blockade on Gaza and noted that Israeli commandos faced organized and violent resistance. The Turkish government then pulled its ambassador from Tel Aviv and expelled Israel's ambassador to Ankara. Number five. On September the 8th, Turkey's prime minister announced that Turkish warships would escort future Gaza-bound flotillas. Six. on September the 9th, thousands of hooligans stormed and nearly sacked the Israeli embassy in Cairo, Egypt. Finally, the world community enthusiastically embraced Mahmoud Abbas at the United Nations, but never held it accountable for all of its atrocities against Israel. The world community holds Israel to a totally different standard when it comes to moral legitimacy. The world community insists that Israel end its occupation of the West Bank. That's always the term it's used. But it has never insisted that the Palestinians accept Israel as a Jewish state, a state where Jews can have a homeland. The world community insists that Israel recognize a new Palestinian state as a homeland for the Palestinian people, but it does not insist that the Palestinians recognize Israel as a homeland for the Jewish people. No Israeli leader should be required to accept terms for the creation of a Palestinian state that does not include the recognition of the Jewish nature of the Israeli state. The Jews of Israel are asking one simple thing of the world community, one simple commitment of the Palestinians. Accept the state of Israel as a Jewish state, a homeland for Jewish people. End your demands for the right of return and accept us as a Jewish state. When I was in Israel a few days ago, I heard again and again from Jewish leaders and friends of mine, that they are willing to accept the Palestinian state. They are willing to exchange land for peace. They will give virtually the entire West Bank back to the Palestinians. But it must be a peace, they said again and again and again to me. It must be a peace where the Palestinians, Hamas included, accept that Israel is a Jewish state. Once they do so, Israel is willing to share its technology with its neighbors, including the Palestinians. It is willing to share its considerable resources with the Palestinians to develop this entire region. But the Palestinians will not do that. Since 1947, when that initial petition was passed by the United Nations, the Palestinians have refused to accept Israel as a Jewish state. The demand that Mahmoud Abbas to the United Nations presented, that they recognize the Palestinian state, is an effort to get a state without settling on peace with Israel. They want a state without recognizing Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. Abbas cannot do that, and the world community must not permit Mahmoud Abbas to accomplish this end run. It is ethically and morally wrong for the world community to do that. What I have tried to do in this perspective is present a brief historical perspective on what has been going on in this part of the world since 1947-48. But it comes down to one bottom-line issue, and I mean this with all my heart, because people who are in Israel, who are friends of mine, have declared this again and again and again. We will share everything with the Palestinians. We accept that they have a right to a state, and we will give up land, but we insist that they recognize our country, the country of Israel, as a Jewish state. Dear people, there is absolutely no evidence that Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, Hamas, or anyone else in that neighborhood is willing to make that acknowledgment. Why should the world community try to force Israel to accept the Palestinians when the Palestinians will not accept them? No nation on this planet should be required to do that. It is unjust, it is unfair, and it is a, an egregious double standard to demand that of Israel. The fundamental issue, and it's been that since 1947-48, is this question— Does Israel have the right to insist that its neighbors recognize it as a Jewish state? In my view, and I think it's utterly compelling, in my view, they should be required to acknowledge that. No one has. And that Mahmoud Abbas is trying to do an end run. He's trying to get a state without recognizing Israel's right to exist. The world community should not allow him to do that. In our second and final perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about what I'm calling postmodern morality among today's young adults. Sociologist Christian Smith, who has written a series of books that I have found incredibly valuable, recently led a research team that conducted in-depth interviews with 230 young adults across America, all of which focused on the moral lives of today's young adults, The results, at least from my perspective, the results are quite depressing. Let me summarize the salient findings of this research project. Number one, when asked to describe a moral dilemma that they faced, two-thirds of the young people ages 18 to 25 either could not answer the question or describe problems that are not moral problems at all, like whether they could afford to rent a certain apartment, or whether they had enough quarters to feed Demeter in a parking lot. Number two, when asked about wrong or evil, right or wrong, they could generally agree that rape and murder are wrong, but aside from these extreme cases, moral ethical thinking did not enter the picture, even when considering things like drunken driving, cheating in school, or even cheating on your partner. One interviewee said, Quote, I really don't deal with right and wrong that often. What an amazing declaration. Number three, the default position most cited was that moral choices are just a matter of individual taste. Ethics is personal. One respondent said, well, it's personal. It's up to the individual. Who am I to say? You see, what they're declaring in these interviews is that there are no ethical standards. There are no set of universal ethical absolutes. It's up to the individual. Number four, many were quick to talk about moral feelings, but hesitant to link these feelings to any broader thinking about a shared moral framework or obligation. One respondent said, I mean, I guess what makes something right is how you feel about it. But people feel different ways, so I couldn't speak on behalf of anyone else as to what is right and what is wrong. Isn't that an amazing declaration? There are no universal standards of what is right and wrong. It's all up to how you feel about something. Finally, what Smith and his researchers have found is an atmosphere in the United States of extreme moral individualism, of relativism of an ethic of non-judgmentalism, tolerance of everything. They have concluded that today's young adults, again 18 to about 23, 24, 25 years, have not been given the resources by schools, institutions, and families to cultivate their moral and ethical intuitions, to think more broadly about obligations, to check behaviors that may be degrading. America is now characterized by the erosion of shared moral frameworks and the rise of an easygoing moral individualism. David Brooks, the columnist, writes, Morality was once revealed, inherited, or shared, but now it is thought of as something that emerges in the privacy of one's own heart. We are no longer a nation, and we haven't been for quite a long time, a nation that has a shared religion, that defines rules and practices. We're no longer a culture that structures people's imaginations and imposes moral discipline. The free-floating individual is now the essential moral unit of American culture. Now, from my perspective and my vantage point, it is difficult to be optimistic. It is difficult to see this development as a positive in American culture. Well, what does all this mean? This recent study just released by Christian Smith and his researchers. Well, what we are seeing is the vital center of postmodernism the doctrine of the autonomous self. In postmodernism, the self defines and really creates its own reality. There are virtually no boundaries for behavior. There are few authority figures that matter anymore. Recently, in an issue of the New York Times magazine, the entire issue was devoted to the concept of autonomy. And the New York Times is hardly an evangelical publication, but it was writing on observations it's made about where American culture is. Autonomy, they argued, impacts all aspects of culture, entertainment, business, law, leisure, and even religion. I, the self, define all aspects of reality. That reality is nothing transcendent that defines it for me, because I am autonomous. There is no transcendent, universal, absolute set of ethics. I create my own ethical framework, and then I try and live by it. Such a claim has a haunting ring of familiarity to it, doesn't it? For the book of Judges has a refrain in the last chapters of the book, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, the ethic, when that ethic was applied to Israel in its pre monarchy in the day of the judges, it resulted in catastrophe. It resulted in moral and ethical chaos. Why do we think in the United States that the result will be any different? We are witnessing the triumph of an ethic of autonomy. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes. And when you mix that individual autonomy with America's deep-seated commitment to rights and liberties, one can see how lethal this combination can become in the area of sexuality, ethics, and morality. There are no boundaries. There are no absolutes. It is the right of the individual that is absolute. This, therefore, frames the discussion on key cultural issues of our day. Abortion, homosexuality, cohabitation before marriage, genetic and reproductive technologies in their use, the right to die with dignity, and on and on and on. When every man does what is right in his own eyes, the limits to freedom and rights are boundless. Nearly 73% of students surveyed in a recent poll said that when their professors teach ethics, The normal message is that uniform standards of right and wrong do not exist. Indeed, what is right or what is wrong depends on differences in each individual and in culture. So if all beliefs are equally valid, there's nothing to debate. Nothing separates out personal truth from self-delusion. If students currently in college are convinced that ethical standards are simply a matter of individual choice, they are less likely to be reliably ethical in their careers. We are now living in a culture where there is no shared ethical framework, no ethical foundation, no institutions that help young adults construct a framework for ethical decision making. All that is left is the autonomous self firmly anchored in mid-air. I recently read a book by James Davis and Hunter, sociologist at the University of Virginia and an evangelical Christian. The book's called The Death of Character. Near the beginning, he writes this We say we want a renewal of character in our day, but we don't really know what we ask for. To have a renewal of character is to have a renewal of a creedal order that constrains, limits, binds, obligates, and compels. The price is too high for us to pay. We want character, but without conviction. We want strong morality, but without the emotional burden of guilt or shame. We want virtue, but without particular moral justifications that invariably offend. We want good without having to name evil. We want decency without the authority to insist upon it. We want moral community without any limitations to personal freedom. In short, we want what we cannot possibly have on the terms that we want it. The moral ethical crisis in America is now clearly articulated in this recent study by Christian Smith and the research team he put together. They are presenting the evidence of personal autonomy rampant in emerging adulthood, 18 to about 25. These are the next leaders of our generation. These are the next teachers and doctors and legislators in our local and state and national government. These are people where the autonomous self is firmly anchored in mid-air. There are no universal set of ethical absolutes for them. It is their feeling of what is right and wrong that governs and drives their ethical decisions. They're people. That's an, a moral and ethical catastrophe on the horizon for this nation. We are seeing the evidence of that already. There must be a return to a set of ethical absolutes and an acknowledgment that they exist and a willingness to abide by them to the glory of God. That is the only solution to this ethical catastrophe on the horizon for this nation.